All right, well, good to see you guys. I'm going to talk about a Jesus-centered eternity tonight. I have had a fascinating time entertaining the questions, pondering these things, studying, thinking about it. Uh, This whole eschatology thing, uh, you know, like I had mentioned, there was definitely a time in my life where I would have rather had my fingernails pulled out with pliers than to teach on eschatology. But I don't feel that way about it right now. But I do realize that we've been plowing along pretty hard. And one of the fruits of the questions that I've had leads to the topic of tonight about having a Jesus-centered eschatology and a Jesus-centered eternity. Not just a Jesus-centered eschatology. One of the the things that I've realized over the last little while is that when we immerse ourselves in beliefs and doctrines, we have a tendency to, at least some people do, have a tendency to think that is the same thing as the reality that those beliefs and doctrines are. And the truth of the matter is, doctrines are just doctrines. <laughs> They're either good doctrines, bad doctrines, true doctrines. All of them are partial, no matter how good they are. And all of them, not all of them, but a lot of them have some redeeming things in them and, and, and reflect the truth to a certain extent. But none of them are the truth. The truth is a living thing in Christ, living thing in God. It's in, and uh, doctrines about anthropology and man, they're not the same thing as dealing with a real person. And so I, I realized that one of the reasons that I'd been anxious about teaching about eschatology is because it was like I was bringing one reality against another reality. And that was scary and awkward, and especially when people are involved and they get all animated about it and everything. And uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not against bumping heads with people. Most lines, but it just wasn't wasn't cool. But uh, I realized that what we're really talking about when we talk about eschatology is the future. We're talking about eternity, and 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 eternity is something. It's not just a series of beliefs. Uh, you know, the simplest way to think about it is Jesus said, "This is eternal life uh, that they would know you," and He was talking about Father. They would know you, the only true God, and Jesus, whom You sent. So anyway, we're taking a wouldn't be a break because the same stuff we're talking about, but but we're focusing on something central to this, I think, and it's this: having a Jesus-centered eternity. So all that we've been talking about, covenant faithfulness and Messiah Jesus, the victory that he won on the cross, the resurrection, the reality of that, the implications of that, new creation, we're going to review that a bit, image bearing restored, all of those things only find their meaning because we are moving toward the summing up of all things in Jesus. And I don't know if you guys have a thought about what that means, summing up everything in Jesus, but... When you slow down and think about it, it's a reality that's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. And so it makes this, this study and we've been doing worthwhile, I think. So here's a review. Uh, what we've been talking about is this sort of three-prong approach of understanding what happened at the cross and how that represents the faithfulness of God. Uh, in Jesus Messiah, the Father forgave sins, and we're living in the benefit of those sins being forgiven. Rulers and the powers... Authority were stripped, and exile was broken, meaning the, the, the forced alienation, the forced subjugation to those kind of uh, lies and leadership. Unfortunately, we can still voluntarily surrender to it, but that's things that you volunteer for, for the most part, you can back out of. And if you, you, know, if you volunteer to turn yourself over to a, to a lie, the truth will set you free. And then image-bearing is restored, and repentance is proclaimed. And so these are the review points. God reconciled the world to himself in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 14-19. Just that whole thing about this is uh, the message. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their, their sins against them. And he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So therefore, as ambassadors to God, it's as if we're begging you to be reconciled to God. There's a lot in there, but... The world is not in the same position that it was prior to Christ's death and resurrection. Not in the same position at all. 
Uh, people are redeemed through the forgiveness of the cross. This passage in Colossians links, if you remember, we've looked at several passages. This has been one of them. Uh, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what it says here. Um, there is a, 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 when we we talk about being redeemed, we're talking about being forgiven. When we're talking about being redeemed and forgiven, we're talking about being reconciled with God. So it's just a context that we've been drilling into ourselves. Rulers were cast down by Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, I, I, I changed this a little bit from what I had up there before to emphasize it was his death and resurrection. I don't even know, and I don't know if you can discern exactly from when the when that happened. You know, uh, in John he says that the spirit of this, uh, the ruler of this world is going to be cast down, and he immediately goes into, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw him into myself. I know it was around the cross. I don't know whether it was when Jesus died on the cross. I don't know whether it was when Jesus rose from the dead. I don't know if it was a package of the whole thing, but I think this is the reality and there in Colossians, it just talks about how he took away the, the accusations against us and nailed them to the cross, and then he stripped and laid waste to the rulers and principalities, making an open display of them. I'm guessing the resurrection had a lot to do with that. That would be my guess. So, um, Anyway, repentance is opened up to all through belief in Jesus. And what I want you to notice here, I, I reframed these just a tiny bit because I'm talking about the importance of a Jesus-centered eschatology, a Jesus-centered theology, a Jesus-centered eternity, a Jesus-centered Christian life. And you see the role that Jesus plays in all these key points. So repentance is opened up to us all. And then belief in Jesus is associated with that repentance everywhere you read about it. And when we've looked at it in the past, in, in my life and in my peers, when we looked at it in the past, it was weird how the argument always went to, well, you have to believe. Is that a rule? Is that a law? Is that a, you know, a condition or whatever? I just think that belief is associated with Jesus. Well, I think belief is associated with reality. And so reality calls for belief, right? If you're uh, going on a road trip or like your kids went to, to Tokyo, uh, there's a reality. Plane uh, at... at uh, Runway three is going to Japan. Plane at runway three or five is going to Houston. <laughs> well, it makes a difference if you get on the wrong one. So you got to know what, what's going on. It's just a link to reality, and Jesus is is the uh, he's the core of that reality. He's the object of that reality. So la- uh, next last point is in Christ, people are new creations. Paul says this: We uh, know that one died. All died, and therefore we don't regard anybody in the flesh anymore. But anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. There's a reality to that. Do we understand it fully? I don't think so. Uh, Can you begin to experience it, though, in your own life as you believe it, as you move forward that way? Yes, I think you can. And can you begin to encounter it when you treat people differently? I think you can. I think you can. I think that's why Paul says we therefore no longer regard anybody according to the flesh. Because if you do keep regarding people toward the flesh, you'll probably get the flesh back in your face. But I don't think it has to be that way because of the work that Jesus has done. And then six, in Jesus we engage eternal new creation life now. Does that make sense? New creation life right now. That's the big lesson I want to take away from new creation and what we've been talking about is that it was inaugurated, it was begun, it was won at the cross, and now even though there appears to be a a now and not yet reality, there appears to be a developmental process, we in fact are in new creation, and it merits our belief. Okay? And then the last point that is is with this eschatology is I'm just giving it this definition, and uh, our expectation of this eternal new creation life is what many call eschatology. And I am studying about this quite a lot. I've dug up some more right stuff. He does a really good job. I listened to a video a couple of days ago, just a day and a half ago, yeah. And uh, he went through six different meanings for the word eschatology that are used commonly among theological discussions and church discussions and so on. And so I'm not at all prepared to articulate those in a meaningful way. I would just drone on and on for you, senseless. But it really makes a lot of sense, and I can, I can show you a little bit about a couple of the different kinds of meaning. One of the meanings of eschatology is literally the expectation of what's coming. Another meaning of uh, eschatology is really held by a group of people 
who uh, who are I don't remember the exact names like historic historic predictors, and it, it's weird. He traced it back through philosophical movements where people felt that by studying eschatology, you could tell what was coming next, and you could begin to predict events, and it it has led to some amazing things in history. So when I get that under my belt, I'm going to be eager to give you a five or ten minute version of that, because we could fall prey to it today, just scanning the news, comparing it with a couple of scriptures, and then we think we know what's coming next. And the danger to that is if you think you know what's coming next, and you're being governed by what you think that isn't real, then you're not going to be in position to respond to what really is set in front of you. So, anyhow, what we want is our personal eschatology to be centered on Jesus. This I'm convinced about. And the reason is because eternity is centered on Jesus. And eschatology is something about eternity, expectations or whatever. So, this is the second review. This is about the the future. Eternal life is knowing and experiencing God. And, you know, uh, John 17, when Jesus talks about it, this is eternal life to to know you, the only true God and Jesus you sent. But I think we've taken some time over the past couple of months, and we see that there's a couple of other components in knowing him, in relating to him. One of them is the new heaven and the new earth. Another is a victorious redemption that's going on even right now. Another is a love that is fulfilled in the future. It's going to be that way. Remember where John says that um, perfect love casts out fear, and by that you'll you'll not be afraid of, of judgment. You'll be confident to face judgment. All this present and future hope, we experience it through Jesus. So that's why we're taking a a break tonight to concentrate on him specifically and not just stuff around him. So the review of this is is new creation is now leading to the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Uh, We had an interesting thing come up. I hope people are going to do it on Tuesday. We uh, were talking about the book of Revelation and we were talking about the Gospel of John and what their relationship is and how uh, there's a school of scholarship that says that John was written first before the God, I mean, uh, Revelation was written first before the Gospels, and that uh, the, the, the title of the book, the title of the book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, is like a glimpse of Jesus in the heavenlies from that spiritual lens, and the Gospel is a glimpse of Jesus walking the earth and what the suggestion came out on Tuesday was to take some time over the weekend or take some time when you have an hour and a half or so and read the book of Revelation and the book of John in that order first and see what you get. So if, you're, if you'll do that and you want to report back, we'll be eager to hear that. Uh, anyway, one of the points here is that new creation right now today is leading to the new heavens and the new earth. It's not leading just to uh, an experience with a disembodied spiritual heaven it's not just leading to uh, a nasty encounter with a flaming bit. It is leading to a new heaven and a new earth. Okay? Second, new creation is the victorious redemption that's happening right now. The 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, it says that, that Jesus must rule until all, all his enemies are subjected to him. And then when he is when when he has all brought all that unto himself, all submitted to him, then he will give that to his father, and God will be all in all. It's the ultimate sort of eschatological summary that's in the New Testament. And uh, you want to read that one just to get it in your mind? Okay, it's kind of an important one. People don't give it the credit I think that it deserves. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in their own order. Christ the firstfruits, and after that those that are Christ's had coming, and then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things in, are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted from who put all things in subjection to him. Father is accepted from being under his feet. I think that's what it means anyway. 
When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So, the reason that probably was worth reading, in even in review, is there is going to be a restored unity between God and creation, between God and man, and some sort of resolution even between God and his enemies. I don't know what that's going to be, and we'll talk about that another day. But Jesus rules until all these things are submitted, and then he gives it to the Father. The end result of this is creation, people, societies, back in perfect union with God. Okay. Important to keep that in mind. And Jesus is the one that brings that together. New creation is love realized and love fulfilled. (laughs) And I I looked at this after I wrote it, now and then. That doesn't mean occasionally. I'm trying to say it's love realized and love fulfilled now. We're experiencing new creation when we experience love being fulfilled now. And we're going to experience it then. Uh, Unfortunately, the others probably feels more like the truth, that you get love every now and then. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, 1 John 4, 9, just by this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. That, more than almost any passage, sums up to me why it's necessary to keep our eyes on Jesus. Because all of the other schemes to be sure you're in good shape to face judgment don't even come close to equaling simplicity of that statement. We love because He first loved us. You are loving. God abides in you. You're cool. Judgment. Okay. Tonight we're going to talk about this. New creation, without any exaggeration, is all about Jesus. So we're going to steward, and we have the advantage of understanding what I mean with the meta-narrative assumption, So we're going to steward our most basic meta-narrative. So, Getting and keeping Jesus at the center of all that we believe. That's what the objective is tonight to look at. And that means all that you believe. So I'm not a big one for telling people what they're supposed to believe. I like to teach. I like to encourage discussion. But I will tell you this. It's important that you believe that Jesus is the centerpiece of Christianity. He's the centerpiece of your faith. He's the centerpiece of the redemptive plan of God. And if you, and, and, and if you let it slip, it'll cause problems. And it slips not just only by accident, but because all the forces that, let, that align themselves against this redemptive plan are trying to minimize Jesus. So, anyway, this is our most basic meta-narrative, that Jesus is at the center of what we believe. So, Jesus is the living centerpiece. Now, I tried to come up with some words to express my own heart out of this. You might not like these words. They may not speak to you that much, but you'll see that, that uh, what the point of them is. He is the living centerpiece of what is, what was, what is to come. You can begin to think of scriptures that say that. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. It was God. Uh, we were, the Lord in his love predestined us to be adopted in his son, right? Or the foundation of the world. So, what is, what was, what is to come. So here's the scripture. Revelation, chapter 1, <laughs> verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservant the things which must soon take place. Now, I'm sympathetic to the fact that uh, a lot of people are fascinated, intrigued, titillated by eschatology, and especially by the book of Revelation, because of the idea of everybody likes to know what's coming. But I want you to see something here. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the name of this book. It's the first words in the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ. 
And then God gave him to show his bondservant things which must soon take place. So this is a revelation of Jesus Christ that I think Father God gave him so that he could pass on to the disciples, us, the things which must soon take place. Now, what I want to emphasize out of this is I want you, when you're tempted to try to analyze what's coming in the future, when you're tempted to try to draw it on a prophetic word from Scripture or some contemporary prophetic word or an end times teacher or something, and you're racking your brain trying to get the wisdom, keep in mind that no matter what it is, it has come to us through the revelation by the Father of Jesus Christ. This is the starting point for all this stuff. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now this first blew me away because I started thinking back to, uh, you know, I'm a Trinitarian kind of guy, and so I think in Trinitarian terms a lot. But I've, I've always known that no matter how distinct you are as you approach the Trinity and how beautiful it is to be able to relate to Jesus and all that he has gained in the incarnation as far as his intimate knowledge of me or how close it is to have the Holy Spirit as your helper or how wonderful it is to have a Father who loves you. A lot of us. Uh, I was fortunate to have that, but I don't everybody does. But it also gets confusing in places. Here's one of them. Who are we talking about? Who are we talking to? Same thing in Isaiah. Uh, there in Isaiah chapter 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Almighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. What? That child is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Almighty God, Everlasting Father? Yes. And this is, I think, where we see the absolute union, the absolute oneness, the absolute complete paracritic union manifesting through Jesus Christ, where the interest and heart of the Father where the interest and heart and power of the Holy Spirit is manifest in Jesus. One common thing. So, this whole thing, again, even though that the tribes of the earth are going to mourn, this is all in Christ. It's all there. We keep our eyes on Him. We're going to be in the position we're supposed to be. And then lastly, when I saw Him, I fell at His feet as a dead man. So if John did that, it's okay. Right? It's okay for this stuff to be overwhelming. It is. It's overwhelming when I see manifestations of it in the world today. And I don't begrudge anybody for being frustrated. I don't begrudge anybody for digging, for begging, for hoping, for some insight, some prophetic word. Look what it says. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he placed his hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first. And the living one that was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death. That's got to give us comfort, guys, if we'll let it, if we'll meditate on that, if we realize that all of these things, time, uh, fear, life, dead, death, hell, Jesus is the one that's in possession of all these things. He's holding them. He is the center. That's why eschatologically, we are on solid ground, no matter what prophetic scheme you end up adopting, thinking, believing, hearing, no matter how closely you see that linked to current events or future events or no matter how far it is, He's the one. We focus on Him. Keep our hearts aimed at Him. Keep speaking to Him. Keep praying to Him. Keep believing in Him. Keep doing what He says to do. We're going to be in good shape. It's just the way it is. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these. Now, Regardless of the definition of eschatology we use, that puts eschatology right in the middle of the revelation of who Jesus is. We need to leave it there. No matter where else we explore, no matter what else we do. Eschatology 
is in, in the hands of a person, human being, who also is God Almighty. And there's only one of him. That means that the future is only in one person's hands. Just his. Flows from him. It flows to him. And it is being governed by him. I don't know about you. That's encouraging. So I assume, starting that reflecting back on meta-narrative, I am going to build a meta-narrative assumption that Jesus is in charge. All that has been, all that is. I am going to assume that Jesus is in charge of all that has been, all that is, that's coming. All authority has been given to me. All authority has been given. So, of that which is to come. So Jesus isn't just the one through whom the revelation comes. Jesus is the Son. He's the King. He's the dawn of all. Son, the King, the dawn. Look at this passage. This is at the end of Revelation. So this big book, full of stuff that we've gone round and round about for a long time. About 15, 16, 1700 years. The beginning of it is the revelation of Jesus. The end of it is the proclamation. Look at this. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. There's nothing outside the boundaries of that definition. Time or in events. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Whatever we face, it's going to fit in there someplace. Okay? Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. So let me just tell you a personal little boost that thinking about this does for me. One of the things that grieves me about the current condition of our country is that the truth has become unmoored. And people can say anything they want, and it just depends on who's on your side, you know, in whatever media group it is or anything like that. So the truth is almost like it's not important anymore. But there is... In Christ, in this eschatology, in this place, a place even for those who love lying. Now, I don't know what that place is like, and I'm not projecting it. And I'm not judging it. I'm not making a big deal about it at all. What I'm saying is, in the realm of Jesus, His authority, in that realm, He's got it all covered. He will be the one that decides. He will not be in the shadows, wringing His hands, going, man, I wish this would work out. I don't know what he's going to be, and we can explore that later, but he's got it covered. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. That's why I said he is the sun, he is the king, and he is the dawn of the new day. He is the son of the family, and he's the king of the kingdom that we're facing. So, our eschatology is in Him, and I think His character is such, and proven to be such, in all our lives in this room, that we can be comfortable with that, safe with that. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. I debated on whether to turn that into a red letter thing. <laughs> so I, I did, because I, I want to believe that there is a reality to that that there is a resonance between the Spirit and the Bride inviting. And I don't know exactly when that invitation is going out. I think it's probably going out today. I think it's part of the new creation that is leading to this city. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Huh. There's an example of confession. Probably in the simplest form of it. 
Let the one who hears say come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Could you frame a sentence to make such an important event any easier to access? (laughs) Whoever wishes, come take the water of life without cost. This is the end of our eschatology, guys. This and everything coming under Jesus' rule and Him giving it all to the Father and being all in all. Okay, so why do we have to choose Jesus as our centerpiece or whatever the word you're going to pick of future hope? Well, so here's a a little Bible study. I put some stuff in there. The blue is about the Father. And I'm trying to identify in this kind of complicated verse in Ephesians 3, uh, or 3 and 1, 3 through 10, I'm trying to identify what's going on when we're talking about the Father, what's going on when we're talking about Jesus. Okay, so it starts out, blessed be the God and Father. Okay, that's who we're talking about, right? Because there's a lot of pronouns. This is a pronoun-laden thing. It'd be very popular in college campuses today. Blessed be the God and Father. <laughs> All right, I've got to say it. Apparently, he's a he, him, but he still does have some feminine traits <laughs> in there. I don't know. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's now you see how the purple and the blue break out, right? Who has blessed us? Who blessed us? God and Father blessed us. Blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He, who? He, God the Father, chose us in who? Christ before the foundation of the world. See what I'm doing with the purple? Okay, so I'll quit doing all that weird commentary that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Oh, what do you know? That's funny. I didn't cover that one. I think that's God the Father. Oh, okay. That was a bummer. That's fine. I love fallibility. In love, He, the Father, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, back to Himself the Father, according to the kind intentions of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed upon us. Who freely bestowed upon us? The Father did in the Beloved. In Him, in the Beloved, I believe, could be the other way around, but I believe so, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespass. You could read that, that in Him is in the Father, we have redemption through His blood, but I believe the emphasis in this passage is being in Jesus. So, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of Father's grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intentions, which He purposed in Him, Jesus. And then this is such an amazing statement, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is. And you understand what that is means, right? It's This thing coming up is explaining the administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. Jesus-centered eternity. Jesus deserves Jesus-centered eschatology. Now, why? The question. Why must we choose Jesus as our centerpiece of future hope? Well, because that's what God did. As complicated as trying to figure out a lot of other prophetic images and make the connections between Daniel and and Isaiah and all the other stuff, the minor prophets, this has got to be one of the simplest points to draw from the Scripture that there is. God has chosen to do what He's doing through Jesus. And we gain it in and through Jesus. And that's why it's super important that we keep Jesus at and as the center of all that we believe. So, if we continue to pursue the ideas about eschatology, and some things get challenged in you, something that you've believed for a long time, something you've been praying about for a long time. You may have had visions. You may have had dreams about it. uh, Whatever the case is, it's okay. 
All I'm asking is that you make sure that the, the fundamental and final measuring stick, the fundamental assumption upon which you say yes or no to things, is this thing, that Jesus is in the middle. He is in the center of our eschatology. Because if you'll think about the people who've gone in your life that you love or know, that have gone way off one way or another, Jesus gets lost in that almost every time. I don't personally know anybody who has focused on Jesus and had a sustained period of craziness like that. Uh, and and I, I do know some people. Uh, Vicky and I encountered a few people when we were younger where th- this doctrine in the assemblies was kind of going around about how uh, Jesus is a, a lady's husband. And that got a little weird for a while. But for the most part, it didn't like spiral out of control. It just created grief between women and their actual husbands. And uh, there was some definite weird stuff. But that's about the worst example I can think of people who were preoccupied with Jesus that went wacky. I just don't think it's that easy to do. And I know, and you know, it's real easy to get wacky if you lose sight of him being in the middle. So, the main reason we should do this and make this our most basic assumption is because the Father's done it. So, here are four steps that I'd like us to take together, and we can start tonight. Uh, One is to confess, to testify, to declare Jesus as the centerpiece. And that's my word. That's my word. I've labored over that. I had some other things, living core, a bunch of different things like that. Uh, heart, I was thinking of that, but then I felt that was in competition with what was in the original condition of the Father, so I didn't pick that word. I'm not saying I can't use it, but the centerpiece came up, and I felt like the Lord kind of said, yeah, that'll work for me. Confess, testify, declare Jesus as the centerpiece of your eschatological hopes and confidence. Okay. The second thing is to explore words and ways to think about and talk about them, which is what I just described to you that I was doing today. Uh, it's important to be able to speak about what you believe. And so work on getting words that allow you to say it. Otherwise, you're tempted to borrow other people's words and all that. And so related to that is to identify a few meaningful to you. Eschatological, whatever that is, scriptures. So like I'm, I'm saying... I don't, I'm not going to talk about eschatology anymore without talking about 1 John chapter 4. And I'm not going to talk about eschatology anymore without talking about uh, 1 Corinthians 15 toward the end of the chapter. I'm just not. I mean, because in, in, in one we're talking about how you have confidence, and the other we're talking about the end of it all. So I want to be armed with some scripture for those times when some person who's really sold out to a particular eschatological scheme says, yeah, but what about? And they start listing off a bunch of scriptures. Get your own. Now, you don't need many. Really, seriously, I think two or three solid ones give you the confidence that, hey, I'm believing out of the scripture here. And then you can answer that very threatening question in the various forms it takes sometimes by saying, you know, I don't know about that. Your ideas are interesting on it. Here's what I know. I know that If I learn to love, it says God abides in me, and God's the one that's actually loving in me, so I'll be okay in judgment. Even if it's, even it's as scary as you're saying. And I don't know about that, but I'm, I'm okay. How about you? (laughs) You know, so just pick up a few of those. And, uh, and and it's okay if it takes a little time. It's kind of like when we did that, let's think about the gospel again. We started with a few verses that I think were kind of neglected, and they've, they've really been kind of blessing to me. And then lastly, This is what I really want you to do. If you make Jesus the center of your eschatology, I want you to be confident that you're taking the future seriously, that that your eschatology is real, that you're taking it as seriously as a guy that has a chart 45 feet long on his garage. Because most of what he put on that chart is in the book called the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave so that we would know about that stuff in context. Most of the interpretations 
that make any sense at all out of those Old Testament prophetic keys like Daniel chapter 7, they're interpretations that come out of that book that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Most, most, well, that's not really true. Absolutely everything that is in Matthew chapter 24 came through the mouth of him. And so we don't have to be afraid of any of it. Just keep in mind, it's either in the book about him from the mouth of him, or best interpreted through him. And so if you make Jesus the center of your eschatology, you are on solid footing and you deserve to feel like that little rabbit looked in the picture I showed last week. (laughs) Does that make sense? Okay, so that's it. Confess Jesus is the centerpiece of eschatology. Explore words and ways to think and talk about him. Identify a few meaningful scriptures. This is not cherry-picking scriptures. Make them real. Let them be real. Let them be real. If you're confused by all the scriptures people throw at you about this or that or millennia or not or this or that, or well, just find ground in the scripture for you and make sure that Jesus is in the middle of it and then be confident. Okay? So that's, I think, all I've got. Yep. So now we have some time for questions, talks, comments, or for you to do one of these things, or all of them. I have a question. Okay. I am good with the idea of Jesus-focused future. Good. Um, What do we do with the idea at least what I understand is that eventually, at the very end of it all, mm-hmm. Jesus gives it all to the Father. Mm-hmm. And so it seems at that point, from that point forward, maybe, that the focus is now on the Father. Could be. Uh, I think that my, the answer that comes to my mind is to just remember and take seriously the fact that Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So any thought that okay, we've struggled through all this and this is all in Jesus and now he's got it all together. And there's a bunch of stuff in there. I mean, all his enemies have to rule. You know, uh, uh, things happen with the sword from his mouth. There's all kinds of stuff. But if, if, we're, if we're trusting that it's going to be okay because it's in Jesus, when he hands it to his Father, it isn't going to take a 90-degree radical turn because if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. So I don't think there's a, a, a bad dad hiding behind the eternal redemption of the son. <laughs> so that's a good question, though. It's a good question. This can be simpler, guys, than it has been painted to be. And in the process, while we don't really know what's going on, we do know what to do, right? We know to love one another. We know to have confidence. It's good, I think, babe. Okay. So... Did I hear correctly when you said that the possibility of revelations being written before John's gospel? <laughs> yes, it is, a, it is a thing that a number of scholars believe. Okay. I'm like blown away by that because that explains like a ton of things to me personally. So that's kind of cool. And then the other thing is the kind intentions of God towards Jesus. So, um, so many people believe that God is such a, like a judging punisher God, but his kind intentions towards Jesus, uh, I mean, I was just thinking about, you know, how people just go, God's pouring out his wrath on the cross and he's doing all these things. If we see God as with kind intentions towards Jesus, Mm -hmm. is there something else going on there? at the cross. Um, in other words, yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, I would disempower the thought that all that violence was authored by God the Father. Right. Yeah, that's not. Yeah. People were amply capable of providing the brutality against Jesus in the judgment. Yeah, that's kind of, kind of, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I think it's true. Okay, anyway, just letting you guys know where my thoughts are cool. on that. Cool. <laughs>
Cool. Anybody else? Anybody want to confess Jesus as the centerpiece of your eschatology? <laughs> I know, I'm trying to close the deal here, you know. Is anybody hesitant to acknowledge that Jesus is the central figure of the future? No, it's absolutely the case. I just want to comment on the earlier stuff on Ephesians, that verse. You want me to back up to it? Uh, Sure. Okay. I mean, I know that looks kind of, you know, you had to diagram it with all the different colors. Uh And part of it you would go, oh my gosh, it's so confusing. But if you look at it another way, it's like, Look at the colors working together, and it's kind of a picture of the perichoresis. It is. That they're all, everybody's connected. The and to your point, if you keep reading in Ephesians, the Spirit gets inserted in there. Yeah. And he's crying out from our hearts, Abba, right. Father, pulling the purple into us. So we put the Spirit right. in and So at one yeah, level, exactly. it's like, okay, be real careful, and you can diagram it. And the other, it's kind of like, you know, it all just merges together. And yeah. we're, that's kind of the and, point. An administration, this is an amazing word. I'd, I'd love your take on it. An administration mm-hmm. suitable to fullness of time. When you're talking about these, uh, these different parts working together mm-hmm. under in coordination between Father, Son, and Spirit, what an amazing administration. What is that going to be like? And what does that say about time? Yeah. And that's also, yeah, if you look at that, that's a, the idea is there is, we can look at heaven as the proverbial, you sit around with harps and on clouds. But the idea here is hmm. there's purpose. There is still purpose yeah. in heaven to do something. Well, and if you and, go back to the whole idea, then you get a bunch of descriptions about the new heaven and the new earth and about the new Jerusalem. Yeah. And you've got the glory of the nations coming into it. And you've got people sitting with him on the throne. And right. you've got people outside, but the gates are still open. I mean, Don't you know you'll judge nations? Yeah, all, yeah, all things, that kind of yeah. stuff. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's cool. That's, a, that's a, a better way to look at it than... My panic over missing one of my purples. Well, I want to confess to you that my hope in the future is pretty non-threatening. And I'm pretty confident because I believe Jesus is the absolute center of it. He's the author of it. And he's in a position right this moment where through the church, and I don't even know how to describe that, he is ruling until all the enemies, all the rebellions, all that is brought under his feet. And he's doing so for the glory of the Father. So, I'm not scared of eschatology or teaching it anymore. Because I haven't really taught it yet. All I've done is just circumvent all the really hard stuff. (laughs) How about exploring words and ways to think and talk about Anybody got a word that you would like different or better than centerpiece? I mean, you might just go straight to the alpha and omega stuff, the beginning and the end. That's pretty powerful. It's pretty powerful. Yes, Ronnie? This is a word, but it's not a... When we talked about it, it's not a dealing with centerpiece. It's dealing with the afterlife. Using the phrase, the afterlife. Instead rather, of eschatology? Instead of, no, instead of, say, heaven. Heaven, yeah. It does open up for some rethinking of things. Because, again, when you say heaven to most people, they hear you with a picture in their head. You know? And um, so it just kind of depends on where it is. Oh, hey, Janet. Just yeah, hold on a second. Go ahead, Becky. I like centerpiece, and it brought back an image that came to me at a conference that I was at last year um, that re-identified uh, centerpiece for me. So usually centerpiece to me means something like this. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> small, pretty, but not really significant. Uh-huh. But the vision that I had um, at this worship conference <clears throat> was Jesus and all of time and all of the nations and everybody and all the universes and whatever were like a ribbon going around him or a wave maybe wow. is a better wow. And he was massive. He was he consumed the universe, and all of us and the whole thing was just this like wavy ribbony thing around cool. him. So I'm gonna stick with centerpiece. Stick with centerpiece. When you said that, and you started before you told the details, 
the, the thought cornerstone came to my mind. And so then I saw a picture of this big, massive thing that holds everything together. Everything's leaning against it and built against it. And, and, you know, but yeah, so that's pretty. That's beautiful. Excellent. Cornerstone might not be a terrible one. Janet, did you have something? Yeah, um, I just wanted to say that I love your perspective that you're sharing on all things being uh, concluded in Jesus and in the Father. You know, the whole perichoresis, the, that's a beautiful position to take for eschatology. And also, I wanted to just ask, um, are we going to be exploring some of these eschatological verses in the coming studies? You know, like Matthew chapter 24 and the book of Revelation and all that stuff, you know? <laughs> Um, we're going to, I mean, I, I, I'm actually kind of excited to talk about Matthew 24 and throw some ideas out there with making sure that Jesus stays in the center. Uh, I don't know if I'm looking at everybody's face. I don't know if there's the energy level in the room to tackle a study for Revelation, but uh, who knows? Uh-huh. We'll look at a few of them. We'll look at a few of them. Just a few is fine. That's all I'm wondering about. I mean, just... Some of you know, there's so many questions, and I don't want to address them all, but I want to hear your thoughts on some of these like verses that are a little bit of a break before we tackle any of that stuff. But uh, okay, and I and partly I want to just let this idea of letting Jesus be the centerpiece, the focus of, of our eschatology, let that come in. So, all right, excellent, though. Thanks for the question. Anybody else? Nobody else has anything they want to say or do or challenge? You got both feet on the ground. Come on. <laughs> I guess something that just keeps uh, that, that passage about the spirit and the bride say come. And you're always careful to say that it, well, I think maybe that means like right now. But ultimately, with, does, Christ, being, with Christ being at the center of everything, doesn't that somewhat make the timing of his goodness almost irrelevant because yeah. it's, it's all-encompassing? I think so. Now, that, that's an interesting way to put it, too. Timing irrelevant. There is an overemphasis in a lot of eschatological thought on timing. Which comes first, the chicken or the millennium, you know, or something along those lines. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be irreverent about that, but if you really know that everything that... that, that, that God, first of all, works all things, uh, you know, according to his good pleasure. He works in us to do according to his good pleasure. He's uh, invested his fullness in Jesus. Jesus is the one bringing this to pass. And you're right that having to parse the timing is not quite as critical. And also, where are we in relationship to the beginning of the end or the middle of the end or whatever? That's less critical, too, because Jesus is sitting there ruling until everything that opposes all that we hope for is brought under his feet. And then once we realize that we're the ones responsible for bringing a lot of that stuff under his feet, then we are in new creation right now. And it's pretty exciting. 